Mi'kmaq fishers are falsely blamed for threatening fisheries conservation. But who wastes the most lobster? Who was convicted of gross violations of fisheries regulations? Step up, Clearwater Seafoods. I'm Glenn Wheeler, and this is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. This is episode 156, and a thank you to listeners like Hilding Nielsen, who support us via patreon.com forward slash Mi'kmaq Matters, or via email transfer to mi'kmaq.matters at gmail.com. Well, I'll leave. Conservation. That's the word thrown up against Mi'kmaq fishers, asserting their treaty right to fish lobster in southwest Nova Scotia, outside the commercial fishery. But leave aside for the moment that Mi'kmaq are fishing fewer than about 500 traps, and there are commercial licenses to fish about 35,000 traps. But more than that, let's look at the corporate monster, working next door in lobster fishing area LFA 41. It's Clearwater, North America's largest distributor of shellfish. If you crack a lobster shell in Boston or New York, there's probably a clear water connection. But though commercial fishers are quick to hassle Mi'kmaq fishers, they won't go public with their complaints against a corporation as powerful as Clearwater. That griping goes no farther than the government wharf. They just watch as Clearwater does what it wants. In particular, the 72-hour rule, which requires that gear be checked at least once in that period. The same DFO that seizes the traps of Mi'kmaq fishers asserting their legal treaty right to fish has been looking the other way for years as Clearwater ignores the 72-hour rule. But then, two years ago, Clearwater was convicted of gross violations of lobster regulations for not obeying the 72-hour rule, which led to the wastage of lobster which died in the untended traps. Long before CBC broke the Clearwater story, Shannon Arnold has been on Clearwater's case. She's Marine Program Senior Coordinator for the Ecology Action Center in Halifax. Shannon Arnold is our guest this week. Let's start with you telling us about the 72-hour rule, what it is, and why we have it. Well, uh, the 72-hour rule is... Fairly self-explanatory, it exists in the Atlantic Fisheries Regulations, which is the laws that bind fishing practices out here. Um, And it just means that every 72 hours, you need to be out there tending your gear. So you have to check your traps or your gill net or whatever it is that you're fishing. You have to go out there and check it. Um, There's a bit of cloudiness as to how and why this this rule exists and where it came from. People talk about it having come from, um, on one side, conflict. So conflict between gear types. You know, there's a lot of gear out in the water, a lot of fishermen out in the water. So making sure that your gear is out there, making sure you're checking it, someone hasn't pulled your gear, et cetera. And there isn't, you know, what they call ghost gear. So that if your gear has been swept away by the tide or somebody has, you know, cut it or something that you can go and report that, that it's missing. So part of it was because of conflict and just making sure people are out there checking to see what's going on. And in some some of the fisheries, it was more of a conservation issue, right? So that you are out there checking, is anything entangled in my gear? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, sea turtles, larger marine mammals. 
<clears throat> or do I have a lot of bycatch? What's going on? You know, so it's really just trying to, there's a lot of people fishing out there all the time, right? So it's really just trying to get a handle on what's happening out there. Is the gear set in the right place? Is it caught on something? All of that kind of stuff. Um, and every fishing fleet has to do it, like Atlantic Canada. So that brings us to uh, Clearwater Fisheries, a name that many people will be familiar with. Um, the largest seafood company in North America, based in your part of the world. Uh, their corporate office is in Bedford, I think. Yep. And, um, and people might not know that it has a monopoly on a huge lobster fishing area. The entire uh, area off the south coast of Nova Scotia, all, all the way from southwest Georgia's Bank, all the way up to basically uh, Cape Breton and uh, the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Huge area, lobster fishing area 41. And it has a quota of 720 tons, which um, I guess is hard for us to visualize that. A lot of traps, it takes a lot of traps to, to catch 720 tons of, of lobster, I guess. And um, the other thing, so, and there are two uh, notable things about Clearwater. It has a monopoly over that area and it has no season, uh, which is interesting in the current context where, um, these Mi'kmaq fishers are fishing out of season, quote unquote. Um, but uh, so despite uh, all the, uh, the clear water access to that huge area, they have not been obeying the 72 hour rule, uh, mm -hmm. it turns out. So yeah. uh, tell us, um, you were, uh, we had some um, uh, uh, a CBC story, a kind of expose, but you were on the story of yeah. Clearwater and the 72 hour rule before CBC was on the story. So tell us how you became interested in the story. What twigged you that there might be an issue with Clearwater and the 72 hour rule? Yeah, well, it, it's funny you say in spite of them having the full access, it's it's almost because, because of them having this exclusive access. And when we were looking at how that fishery operates, there's no one else out there um, looking at their lobster traps and they don't really have anyone looking over their shoulder. If you're an inshore fisherman and there are thousands of inshore fishermen in the same areas, you have this neighborhood policing in a sense, right? So you know where everybody else's traps are. You can see what's going on in the water. You gotta be out there every 72 hours at least. You're usually out there every 24 hours hauling your gear. Yeah. Um, and so you have this situation where Clearwater has kind of just had this whole area to themselves and basically decided for economic reasons that they were going to, you know, consolidate all the licenses. At one point in time, they had two boats and then they thought, no, let's put them all on one big boat um, and keep all the same amount of traps that we have in this huge area. And we can go out and do whatever we want out there. We can go fish it when we want. We can leave it when we want. You know, we'll just kind of use this area <laughs> as our own little lobster ground, which it is in, in the way that they have access. Um, and so, you know, we have, myself and the work that we do at our organization, we work um, to try and support inshore fisheries. We've kept an eye on the big offshore boats um, on and off over years to try and figure out like, you know, what's happening? Are they having enforcement? Are people seeing what's going on out there? Um, and this one in particular, because they own all of the licenses um, and they consolidate them on one boat, they also end up falling under Canadian Privacy Act rules in terms of finding out any information about them. So when we wanted to get more information about the fishery, we started to run into these roadblocks. 
You can't find out where they're fishing, how many traps they have at any time. And that's all because of this rule of five, it's called, that, that, has, that DFO has underneath the Privacy Act. Um, anything that's like less than five boats, less than five processing plants, less than five whatever has to be amalgamated in terms of data. So you can't identify them for proprietary reasons. And so this is really problematic when you start looking at the corporate consolidated fisheries. If you have just one entity, there's kind of very little you can learn about mm -hmm. it outside of like what's on the management plan and stuff. But, so just looking already, at it, but just looking at it, uh, if they have this huge area and one boat, you know, there yeah. might be an issue because you're wondering, well, how can they fish can all that, that area with one boat? That's right. Like logistically. And when you looked at, you know, the management plan at the time and we were just getting to be part of the advisory committee, you know, they're somewhere between it says and it had said in the management plan somewhere between 8000 and 10,000 traps out there. And so you start you just do the math very quickly at least 50 miles offshore you have one boat you're supposed to be hauling all of those traps every 72 hours or maybe not all the traps are there but like people are sitting next to shelburne wharf and are looking and you know they don't have 10,000 traps piled up at the pier so you start to and of course for many years people knew that the general practice that they were doing was just leaving thousands of traps out there um, like with the escape hatch open, some of them just went because they didn't want to bring them all into the pier all the time. So it was and an economic for them. It's an economic issue. It's uh, it's cheaper for them. They can operate one boat, one yeah. crew, and just leave the traps there. So rather than hauling them up and bringing them in all that time, uh, paying yeah. people, it's cheaper to yeah, do not obey the seventy-two hour rule. Yeah, so everybody knew like once or twice a year, the boat would be in dock at least for three or four months getting fixed. They never saw, you know, big piles of traps coming in. And so this was kind of known. It's It's been known in Southwest Nova for a long time. And so when we got really interested in it is when they were pursuing um, a sustainable seafood certification for this fishery. And, you know, we thought, oh, man, I... Sustainable seafood certifications are supposed to differentiate, you know, the, the really good players out there, the ones who are really putting their effort into being more sustainable. And at this time, the inshore lobster did not have a sustainability certificate. And, you know, it is a pretty low impact fishery. You've got trap gear and it's a, the lifeblood of Nova Scotia. And, you know, you're thinking, how can this offshore fishery that everybody knows has quite... Um, you know, it is not is not fishing really within the rules. Get this certification, and they did. They achieved that sustainability certification, and they did a lot of PR about it. And Clearwater went and and you know sat on the stakeholder advisory council for that sustainability certification system and everything. And it just kind of wrangled us in the sense of um, again using that money and power and access that they have to to get this special certification that allows them to access international markets who are more and more requiring some sort of sustainability certificate. And so we started to really dig into, you know, is this possible? How can they possibly be following the 72 hour rule? And what about all of this stuff that we hear all the time about them, quote unquote, storing their traps on the ocean floor? What is that, right? And so we really started to look into it and, um, the first big thing that we came across really was that when I dug into the management plan, which are, you know, the public pieces that we have from the department, the management plan 
had a line in it that really stuck out to me, which said that this fishery is exempt from the 72 hour rule. Mm. And, I, you know, I've worked in fisheries policy for quite a while. Then we sit at all the councils and committees in order to change the 72 hour rule, which is in the Atlantic fisheries regulations, it would have had to go through, you know, Gazette one and Gazette two. And yeah, it has to be changed by the parliament of Canada. It has to be, uh, the government has to do something to change the yeah, law. Essentially. Yeah. And we would have noticed because it, it <laughs> a lot of people, other people would like to change this rule. There are lots of fishermen who don't like the 72 hour rule. And if they had their way, they would also not fish by it. Or, you know, they try and come up with something different. So we definitely would have noticed. So I brought that to the department. And I said, is this true? Because they, Clearwater is also quoting this in their sustainability certificate. And we brought all of the evidence to the auditors and we said, they're not fishing in the 72 hour rule. And the certification body came back to us and said, they told us they have an exemption to the law. And so <laughs> it was this kind of circle of, of Clearwater telling things. And so I went to DFO and I pressed them and um, it took them a uh, number of months to ferret out and all they came back with eventually was like oh no thanks for pointing that out we're not sure how that got into the management plan um and they changed it it was a new manager that was on that and they had had a, the same manager for a decade or something before that in terms of dfo and so so the long and the short of it and it was it was that. not a, it was not accurate what uh Clearwater was saying they were not they they were not exempt they were obligated by law to follow the 72-hour rule and to me, that's a big question as to how that's a DFO document. And someone in DFO had written in that document, this specific line that they were exempt from that. And mm. it had kind of gone unnoticed for a number of years. And so to me, that's, you know, a really good um, example of, of this very close relationship they have with the regulator and had had for, for many years. Um, and so that was kind of the start of it. Okay, so let's fast forward to uh, 2019, when there is a story, uh, an investigative expose type story by uh, by CBC, by Paul Withers, uh, Halifax-based uh, CBC reporter who covers fisheries, and there is a conviction of Clearwater in provincial mm -hmm. court uh, for a quote-unquote gross violation in the lobster fishery. Uh, Clearwater convicted of... Um, of not obeying the 72 hour rule and, um, and uh, charged uh, 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 assessed a fine of $30,000 um, as a result of this DFO uh, enforcement. And uh, as uh, is clear from this um, CBC story, DFO was on them for some time about the 72 hour rule uh, before these charges were laid. And, um, and, um, the the uh, def one of the defenses that Clearwater used was well these traps were not baited, and the escape hatch was was off so therefore no big deal, but um, uh, it's not uh, necessarily that simple because even though the traps uh, are are not baited and the trap door is off they can still cause. Um, uh, damage in terms of uh, lobster getting in, getting trapped, other species getting in there. So it is a, a wasteful sort of anti-conservation uh, move to have these uh, traps uh, on the water uh, baited or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there was, it was kind of two things going on. And, and one thing was this idea of storing the traps um, where they had 
for many years stored thousands of traps during the time when they didn't want to really be fishing. And they said that those were, were the escape hatches were open and they were not baited. So the um, enforcement officers had gone out finally and, and um, hauled gear and checked the gear. And uh, even in the traps, so they pulled up, they fish in strings of a hundred traps and they pulled them up and they counted out the lobsters um, by bits and pieces because they cannibalize each other, right? If they're all trapped in a trap. So they start to eat each other. And even in the ones that they said were unbaited, they were counting up 15,000 pounds of lobster. Um, and that was part of the court proceedings. And then, you know, they put it all out in, in records and stuff. And it, and it, that's a significant amount of lobster. Um, and that was just in a few strings that they pulled up of traps to check. And so if you think about that and multiply it by the thousands of traps that they had been doing this with and the many years that they had been doing this with, um, that is a significant amount of waste of lobster. And the only reason they could do that is because when lobsters are eating each other, they leave claws and they leave bits and pieces. So they, they were able to count up the amount of lobsters, but they weren't able to count up um, you know, the fish that would have been eaten. So the cod and cusk is usually in there, these kinds of things. Um, and so we really have no idea as much about how much bycatch there was of other, other um, fish. And then you have their regularly fished traps, the ones that are baited um, and that they're supposed to be going out and hauling every 72 hours and that are active. And those also they had looked over a period of two, three years while they were doing this enforcement. And they found that um, 50% of their traps were regularly not hauled every 72 hours. And those are the ones that are baited. And so, you know, you combine all of that. And um, finally, they had some charges that stuck. Um, so I guess the law, the, what we can infer from that is they have this, this quota of uh, 720 uh, tons mm -hmm. um, for which they catch from this exclusive area, this, uh, this public resource that they have exclusive control over. So right. in, in fishing their quota, they're probably uh, taking a lot more, the, the number of lobster that, uh, that, are taken in the process of getting their of getting their quota is even much bigger than the quota because of the wastage of these uh, caused by these uh, these traps. Yeah, it must be. Um, and you know, it's um, the lobster in the area are, are abundant. Uh, they've never had a problem catching their seven hundred and twenty tons. It's quite easy for them to fill their traps all the time, and so there must be you know, a lot of bycatch of lobster, discarded lobster, lobster wastage, um, because their traps are getting filled quite easily all the time. And so, and that is not being documented. Um, they're not having to report dead lobsters or extra lobsters. Um, and so there's gotta be a lot of wastage going on. And, and that area, if you look at the maps of where they're fishing, although they have this huge area that stretches all along Nova Scotia, in fact, where the lobsters are really located in the abundance of lobsters is, is quite close to the 50 mile line. And that 50 mile line, 50 miles offshore is the separation between inshore and offshore. And, you know, at the time when the when this offshore lobster fishery was created uh, in the 80s and 90s, you know the inshore boats were fishing much more near shore, so very close to shore, much smaller boats, um, 
And these days, if you look at where the inshore fishery is in that LFA 33 and 34, which comes right up against um, Clearwater's area there, they're fishing right at the 50 mile line. There's a huge amount of fishing happening. They have much bigger boats, bigger, bigger traps, you know, like they're way out there now. And Clearwater is fishing right against the 50 mile line on their side of things. Um, and they don't have to compete with thousands of other fishermen. You know, you everybody knows about dumping day, the first day of the season, it's very dangerous. People are, you know, all their traps as much as possible. They're running out there to get the right spots and it's quite dangerous. Um, and Clearwater doesn't have to worry about that, even though they're fishing right next to where, you know, this is where the, the lobster is really abundant in the last number of years. It's nice cold waters, they like it. Mm -hmm. And so, so you, you know, you really look at those access issues there. Yes, and for and you point out uh, LFA uh, thirty four and thirty three, and of course, people are following the news and what's happening in Southwest Nova Scotia, mm -hmm. and the uh, and the Mi'kmaq fishers, and so and as you say, uh, Clearwater's area uh, LFA uh, forty one um, is they're sort of neighbors of LFA thirty four, which is where most of the action has been that people have been following on the news. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, uh, I see there's a, uh, indicated on one of the maps, um, there's a spawning ground that kind of straddles uh, 41 and 34. So it's, um, it's yeah. uh, they are related areas, we might say. Yeah, yeah. So there's no question that actually the population, all of the, they're all one population. It's called sub main, sub Gulf of Maine population. Um and all of, there's been genetic work that's been done and, and all of the, from Southern Maine, all the way up no, Southwest Nova and all of that, it's one population. Um, and so, yeah, there's LFA 40 it's called and that's a closed ground that where they discovered that there was like quite a few breeding females and they know that that um, is seeding kind of the inshore and out and offshore. Um, and there's a, you know, still work being done, but we know that in LFA 41, um, there's a lot of large breeding females. Um, and so the settlement, right, you know, you have the lobsters and their little babies, they float around on the top of the water for a couple of years, and they're floating in and out and between all of the LFAs. Um, and in particular, in this area, this Southwest Nova area, they're seeding back and forth. And so it's all one population. Mm -hmm. um, and so whatever is impacting, you know, in the different areas, it, it's going to be impacting the rest of, of the population. Mm. Um, and so that should be a concern for folks, this idea that, and we know that they're catching large females, um, more particularly out there, and that's why 40 is next to them as well. So it really should be a concern um, in terms of like large fecund females um, and the impact of that out there in terms of they have the same minimum size as, as the inshore does. Um, and how much, again, how much are they discarding? How much are coming up eaten in these traps? Yes, they yeah. only have like 4% of their traps are covered by observer coverage. Um, so, and given the history of them, you know, these were the one charges that finally got to court, but you can ask anyone in the area, we, people know that they've been doing this for decades, you know? Um, so, so and, what is, and what is the situation now? Uh, we had this court case in 2019, is Clearwater, abiding by the 72-hour rule at this moment? Have they cleaned up their act? That's a very good question. And I was hoping to ask that question just about now because what happened was, you know, they went to the court, they got this fine. 
um, they made some promises and they managed to retain their sustainability certification despite having been convicted in court of illegal fishing. And to maintain that certification, they made promises um, about, yes, they're gonna fish within the rules and they're gonna show people that they, they've been doing that somehow, hopefully by showing us their fishing tracks uh, and timing. Um, and that they were going to reduce the amount of traps that they had out there and these things. We argued that they should have like had to show that within a year to get their certification back. But the certification body decided, okay, after a year, show us the evidence. And they're also um, supposed to be showing this big research project that they've been doing on soak times with both public and private money um, that no one has ever been able to see. Um, and so that was supposed to be about now. But the audit I've just discovered um, from the certification company has been pushed back six months because of COVID delays. Um, and upcoming is the management annual management meeting for this fishery. We've been keeping an eye on it. And I don't, you know, we, we have lots of fishermen down there in Shelburne that have been watching the dock. They have their own private wharf mm. um, to see if they are indeed coming in and out. So one of the biggest things that tweaked the enforcement officers to it is this, like they dry dock for, they're up in the dock for two weeks at a time, or they lend their boat out for other people to use and they're just not around. So we have had some fishermen that have been watching that over the year to see like, are they in the dock for more than 72 hours here and there, you know, are we seeing large amounts of traps coming in? And we are kind of gathering that. And there is some evidence over this past year that there have been times when they've been sitting in that dock for a long time. Um, and we saw new traps going out by the hundreds, but we haven't seen like massive amounts of thousand traps coming in. So it's unclear um, whether they've really changed their practices. I've had some chats with um, Clearwater and they said they've reduced their traps down to 6,500. Um, and so, you know, I intend to ask the DFO what they've done in the last year to prove, you know, that they've changed this. Have they increased their observer coverage? Have they been watching their vessel tracks? Like, where is where is the evidence that they've changed um, their fishing? Because as far as we can see on, you know, publicly available stuff, they haven't shifted too much. Right, Shannon. Well, I think this story uh, will be continued. This is not the end of the story. We're <laughs> just in the middle of the story. So, um... Thank you for your work on this and thanks for chatting about it. No problem. Shannon Arnold, Marine Program Senior Coordinator at the Ecology Action Center in Halifax. We contacted Clearwater and asked if they are currently obeying the 72-hour rule. We received no response. And that's it for the program. If you listen to us via podcast, could you please like us on whatever platform you use? Help us get higher and higher in those podcast listings. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Nimaltus. <laughs>